I was just thinking about that last song, um, kind of con in conjunction with something I want to share about last week. Um, but there was a line in that last song that says, "You're." He I think it's you're here and you're here. And in, my, in your presence, I'm made whole. And that you're near and that you're near and of el else I'm letting go. And I just sense that um, tonight, I think, and in this season of our church, that that's a place where a lot of us are at. Um, just in this place of receiving the Lord, that the Lord has been so kind and gracious to be with us and so present um, in this season with us through worship and through the word, uh, through both the book of Revelation and through the book of Matthew. Um, and that I just encourage all of us to lean into that season, that God desires to make us whole and that he desires to draw near and um, that he desires that we let go of everything else in our hand and grasp and run to him. It was um, interesting last week, there's those moments, uh, you know, in your life. I love baptisms. Last week, I was supposed to teach last week, and then Frank Sale called and said, like, hey, you know, can we put you off a week? And sure, no problem here. Um, that's good with me. And uh, they said, you're going to have the baptism, and there's going to be a little bit of a different feel to it. Um, he's going to give the opportunity. There's a lot of people being baptized. I think there was about 30 people being baptized. Um, and just the excitement of what God was doing there last week was so energizing. But there's those moments um, in time, I just feel like when you're anticipating something and looking forward to something and you just get a little bit knocked off guard by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been there before where the presence of God or maybe it's the encounter of Jesus is so real that um, it's like heaven meets earth. I was just sitting there in the worship and I just felt like, man, the Lord is here and he's invited us into his presence. And it's like a tangible experience. For me, that moment was, again, last week at the baptism. I don't know if you were there. Was, any, was anybody there last week? Was it amazing or what? I was personally there, and I love to celebrate the life of Christ and others. But um, at the same time, last week, I was radically, radically challenged and radically encouraged that God is at work and God is in our midst. They gave some people the opportunity to share if they desired. And, well, um, I was sharing again with Francel this week that I can't stop thinking about there was these two gals towards the end. I don't know if they're here, um, but you're an incredible encouragement to my faith personally. Um, one name uh, of the gal was uh, named Tracy, and I think the other gal was Alyssa. Um, and I can't stop thinking about their testimonies. Um, it was a powerful phrase or a number of phrases they used. One said, um, sorry, I tend to cry a lot. Even in the announcements, my wife said they're going to fire me. Um, <laughs> Tracy is now dead. That person no longer lives, and now I'm running to Jesus. Did you catch that one? And the other, I think it was much more powerful and much more palatable. She said, today I'm getting baptized because God told me I didn't need to hide anymore. 
Those carry weight and the power of God to transform and bring new life. I heard this phrase two days ago. I was sharing it with my wife the other day. I felt like it captured their message as they just simply shared, and no one asked them. The Lord had put something in their heart. They shared those things, and this phrase sounded so much like what Jesus would have said to them, that their sin and shame were burned away by love. Isn't that the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what Jesus does? I think that moment and that phrase for me sums up Jesus, his life and his mission. As we study through the book of Matthew, I specifically look at the life of Jesus and we, I think the theme of the book of Matthew that we have created was Jesus is the king, Jesus the king is coming and the coming kingdom. And this moment last week was evidence for me of the kingdom come and that the king is present in our midst and that we have the pleasure and the privilege of being in the presence of Jesus, that we can see the kingdom and participate in it, draw people into it now, and, but at the same time have a living hope looking forward to that fact that the kingdom is coming. I love it because those testimonies spoke into my heart, as it says in Romans, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that Jesus is alive. Sometimes you just need to see that, hear that, experience that, because maybe you're in a place where um, your faith is dry, or maybe you've been a season where you feel like, where is the Lord? Is he not speaking to me? And when you see something like the life of Tracy or this other gal or uh, my friend Rob Bender's daughter, Sienna, and there's just generations of people following Jesus and dedicating their lives to Jesus. It's such a radical encouragement that Jesus is alive, right? That our faith is real and that we're not doing this in vain. So as we turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, and you can turn there now if you'd like, I just want to be, by way of reminder, walk us back through two of the last studies we have been through some very encouraging, encouraging and challenging chapters. In chapter 3, we looked at the baptism of Jesus, and we know that in the book of John, a corresponding account that John saw Jesus, and he stated that the Lamb, that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that the purpose of his coming was to establish a new kingdom. Jesus was here to start a new kingdom, and that he was in uh, the presence to usher in that kingdom, to bring freedom specifically from sin, that he would set an example for us to follow. I love how the imagery, especially in the book of Mark, chapter 1, pictures the baptism of Jesus. It gives these incredible phrases where it says, and the heavens, when Jesus was baptized, were torn open, and the Spirit of God came upon Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He saw that Jesus out of obedience and submission was pleasing to the father, that he was yet to do anything, but out of love, he was pleasing to the father. That he had submitted his entire life for one purpose, the will of the father. And it was in that moment that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, we saw, as Gabe spoke last week, that we see that following that this, uh, the Spirit would drive him into the, t uh, the wilderness to be tempted. It says there that 
following great victory, there would be a time of testing. And I went away with a few things. First and foremost, uh, and important that we have a high priest that can identify with our weakness. That he was tempted in all ways just like us, and that we can go into the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in time of need. The second thing I walked away with is that the enemy is always at heart attempting to confuse and distort the word and the character of God. Isn't that his character? To distort the word of God. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, he said, did God say? He would be uh, trying to confuse and trying to miscategorize the word of God and question the character of God. That There was this temptation in Jesus' time in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, of God's ability, God's word, and God's plan. But as Jesus was in the wilderness, most likely meditating on the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, and Psalm chapter 91, he would use the word wisely and accurately to sustain himself. He gives us this example that when temptation comes or when conflict comes, that the word of God is there to bring truth into our lives, to lead us and to guide us. Now, as we look at the last portion of that chapter, we're going to consider, or this chapter, we're going to consider a number of things. I just want to point out before we get into the chapter how Jesus responds to difficulty, Jesus' faithfulness to fulfill that which is written, the message and the mission of Jesus, and the expansion of the kingdom, inviting us to be empowered, gifted, and to go out on mission. Let's start with verse 12. And I just want to read a portion of it. And I want you to use a bit of your imagination as you listen to this and maybe see and hear some new things. Chapter 4, verse 12 says, Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew. At this moment, a crisis or a difficulty arises. We know that because John's message to Herod, specifically those, he gave Herod a message uh, of, of uh, rebuke, of challenge. Herod was um, he killed uh, the husband of, of this gal. Sorry, I forgot her name. Um, and he took his brother's wife for his own. And John, out of, in, in his preaching, rebuked Herod for this. We know that he was imprisoned, and it would not be long because of this commitment to holiness that John would be killed. It was a tragic turn of events, but one that did not alter the course of Jesus. Jesus had a very specific intention and a very specific purpose in his life, to fulfill the will of the Father. In fact, John knew he was just a shadow of that to come, and he said in John chapter 3, verses 30, He must increase, and I must decrease. So in this moment when John is experiencing tragedy and difficulty and impending death, and Jesus is hearing these things, he withdraws. But it's interesting that they're both okay. They're both very incredibly secure exactly where they're at. John knew he was just a shadow. Jesus knew that his ministry was beginning. 
And I thought oftentimes we can interpret crisis as interruption or difficulty as inconvenience. But often it's in the biblical narrative much different. These moments of crisis or difficulty invade our lives as opportunity. If you're taking notes, I just encourage you to write that down. These moments of crisis or difficulty are moments of opportunity to draw near and to see God, to hear and become new. We see this throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Joshua, chapter 1, it says that God told Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Something that day, a friend, a mentor, a leader, in Joshua's life died. It was a tragedy. It was a, a moment that was quite challenging for Joshua, but it was at that very moment God called and commissioned Joshua. We know that in Isaiah 6, a very familiar passage, that it says there that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that it says that Isaiah saw the Lord. Imagine that, in the midst of the tragedy that Isaiah was experiencing, the greatest and most profound experience of his entire life would happen is that he would see the Lord. In the book of Job, we see that with all of Job's loss, not because of his own doing, but because of the testing that came from Satan, that as he would make his way through this, he would later state at the very end in the final chapter, I had heard of you with hearing, but now I see you. That's a powerful phrase, right? That he had heard things about God, he was following God, but in the midst of challenge and difficulty and conflict and struggle, Job now knew God. Each of these people were leaning into the crisis and grief and welcomed them for something greater. And I challenge you, if you're in that moment, even in your own life right now, and you're going through a difficulty, you're going through a loss, you're going through a challenge or a conflict, embrace that as the will of God. Embrace that and ask God, God, what is it that you're trying to show me? What is it you're trying to say? For it was through these, the hearing of the circumstances of John, that it would be the entrance for Jesus into and the start of his own ministry. Often one time, or after, oftentimes one season must end before a new one can begin in our lives. We have to let go of something that's past or the, the things that are no longer that we might embrace something new that God wants to do. The book of Isaiah says that, behold, I do a new thing. Don't consider those things of old. Jesus would willingly let go in this particular chapter as it looks as if Jesus is hearing these things about John and it says he withdrew into Galilee and he leaves Nazareth. You might be familiar with the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. It was a season that Abraham was called to leave a place of comfort and control. Maybe for some of us it's familiarity. But it needs to be left behind to fulfill the purpose that God has for our lives. Jesus willingly did this, that he might take hold of that which the Father had for him. 
He would be called out of a place to fulfill the word of promise. I know the uniqueness of grief and difficulty. I've been through the grief course, and you know, each of our grief and difficulty is unique. We respond to it differently, it impacts us differently. But there's always this great opportunity that it has the ability to awaken us, to draw us near. It allows us to see with new eyes, with new ears, that God, in spite of crisis, loss, death, or grief, that God is in control and he has a plan. Jesus saw this, and he set his eyes on what God would have for him, God the Father. It was through a moment of great difficulty and, you know, in our lives, I, just speaking from personal experience, that years ago there was a time where difficulty, loss, grief, all sorts of just conflict and seemed to be a tremendous amount of darkness, that God set me and my family on a new course of seeing him in a new way and entering a whole new season of refreshing and of ministry and that our lives become so much more full. And since that moment, by God's grace, we've experienced, I would say the last 15 years have been the greatest years of my life. Both in relationship to God and to the ministry of others. Isaiah 54, 2 through 3 says this, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. In that, there's this command to extend our borders, to make a place for others, to make room for a promise. And Jesus himself saw that something greater was at hand. And he willingly stepped into that call. Yet this was not an easy task ahead, as we know, because it's interesting. It says in verse 14 that he did that he might fulfill that which was spoken by Isaiah. I love how the, 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 the scriptures through chapter 1 through 4 so far, Jesus is giving us a model for life and for mission. Imagine he's going through these difficulties and challenges. He's seen the, the excitement of the opening of the kingdom and ministry, but he knows at the end of that is the cross. But what does it say about Jesus that he did it? There in verse 14, so what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, Verse 15 and 16. So just a little bit of background on this um, before we get into the passage. From verse 13 uh, into 15, it talks about some very specific areas. Now, one of the things about this, um, I don't know where exactly it is on the map. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Sorry, I didn't do the research on that. Um, but these were the most broken areas of the region the darkest areas. But it's interesting that Jesus didn't go into Jerusalem where the religious people were at. He went to the outskirts and to the places that were dark and in need of light. 
not the religious areas, but the dark areas. Now, this area was overly populated. In fact, there's about two million people in this area at the time. He went where people would be most ready to hear his message. And I find that very interesting about Jesus, that everything that Jesus did, there was a purpose and intention about that. We'll see that a little bit later with um, a very specific situation with a man in Mark chapter 5. But these people were not religious, but they were ready. And he was extremely intentional. Now, let's read it from uh, verse 16, but I want to read it from Isaiah 9, 2. It says here in this version, I'm using the ESV version. Some of you guys might be using the same version Lance uses, the King James version. But it's interesting, and I'm not sure why this is. Maybe we need maybe like Mike Clunder to tell us why, because he's got the Hebrew and the Greek down. But um, the quotation in Matthew of chapter 9, verse 2, is different than the quotation of Isaiah in 9, verse 2. It's the same message. It's just a little bit different in the wording. I like the wording, and I want to read from Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Kind of back to the baptism um, and the, the, the situation with those gals and their testimony. I think about this right here. I think one of the reasons why that was so powerful for me, and I think maybe it might be the same for you, is that when someone's getting baptized and they're kind of making this statement that um, I'm making a commitment, a full commitment to Jesus Christ. And I want all of you guys to know about, know, know about that. I think there's this little bit of a tangible taste of what we once were, right? And as they were sharing those things, I could just, just remember back to what I was before Christ. Grew up in the church, but incredibly lost in, in walking in darkness, dwelling in a land of deep darkness. But I had seen a great light. I walked into a Tuesday night Bible study, and there was a blonde-haired surfer dude up front teaching through the book of Romans, and a couple dudes, uh, like one with a pompadour and some Asian dude with long hair playing music. And it was like, Jesus met me. And at that moment, I saw a great light. And it's been a different life ever since. I imagine when we think about this place, these cities and all these people, when in Jesus, or the, the scriptures talk about it being a place of darkness, that this is a place much like we find ourselves in the world today. A place of incredible brokenness, sin, and darkness. Man, and it just doesn't seem to be getting any lighter. It just seems to be getting darker and more broken and more desperate. But there's a truth here that speaks of the coming of Jesus and its effect would be that there would be a great light seen and on them a great light was shown. A little bit of a side note. I was in the parking lot. We were walking up the other day and um, we met a friend and she was telling us about a situation with her daughter who lives away and um, just God invading this gal and her family. 
And then all these young people around this young gal's life and this, these, this friend group is starting to see the light. And this gal started weeping. And it was like, it's been so long since I've seen that light tangibly break away the darkness. And this is what he's promising. Now, if we look a little bit further and we see some context here, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we know that for unto us a child is born and unto us a son was given. So a child was born, but a son was given. And when we talk about this idea of darkness and the great light being seen and the light was shown in and invaded the darkness, I love that in, um, I guess, scientifically, you know, you can't drown out light with darkness, but you can surely drown out darkness with light. The smallest light can bend itself around and open up our eyes to see. But there's this promise that a child would be born and a son would be given. We saw that in Matthew chapter 1 and in Matthew chapter 2, as Randy taught. But I just want to remind you of some things about this light, about this son that was given. John chapter 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the only begotten. And by believing in him, we have become children of God. That in him was grace and truth, and in him was the light of men. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe would not perish. And at the same time, through the epistles it says that we were dead at one time in our trespasses and sins. That we also walked in the way of the Gentiles in that same darkness. But that in and through Christ we have redemption as it says in Ephesians, through the blood of his cross and the forgiveness of our trespasses, that according to grace, by faith, we've been saved, and that he's created us for good works and for us to walk in those, and that he's made us alive with him. And here in Colossians chapter 2, it says, and he canceled the debt against us, setting aside, nailing it to the cross, that we could be justified by faith in God, through Christ, and have peace with God. Imagine being in this place, this overly populated place. There's no sense of religion. There's no sense of life. There's debauchery and darkness and just brokenness. And this man comes preaching a message of goodness and grace. a life-changing message. Now let's look at that last portion in chapter 9 as it continues on through, as we know the story through, um, we quote this every Christmas, which I guess according to the um, announcements, we're getting ready for Christmas. You get to make a craft in a couple weeks for Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. I just want to look at a couple things here. As the, as the son is given, as the child is born, and we, 
went through all of these things that with Jesus came, the message and the person and the freedom from sin and the forgiveness and the redemption from our trespasses and being saved and walking in new works and having peace with God. That as we continue down this passage into verse 17, we're going to see that Jesus was about to establish an entirely new kingdom. The king had come and he was establishing his kingdom. It says there in verse 6 of Isaiah that the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, I just want to focus on a couple things that it says here. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor. This idea of wonderful is this idea of this indescribable goodness. This undefinable quality and characteristic. This idea of counselor is that there would be this incredible wisdom that God would come in and through Christ into our lives. It's a mighty God, everlasting Father. What about Prince of Peace? I think these are important terms, and as we look at the kingdom, it's important because Jesus was establishing a government and a kingdom that was very different than the Jews were expecting. It's very different than even in the last few years that we've been expecting, or maybe even some of us have been looking for. And he says he would establish this kingdom through David and through the the. The, the line of David, and it says at the very end of chapter uh, 9, verse 7 of Isaiah, it says, and he will surely do it. So Jesus was coming into a dark place. He was a son given. These were the, counsel, or these were the characteristics of Jesus. And now I know from Isaiah 61, this is the message or the mission of Jesus. Let me just read it to you. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So in both of these passages, we see who Jesus would be and what he would be called to do. There was a definite message here in verse 17. Let me read it to you. From that time, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew, he went into this area, and he says he began to preach, saying this very simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was an incredibly simple message. I just want to take a moment to break that down a bit. Repentance. It's not a really a word we use anymore. Definitely not one we regularly use in our culture, or even in the church, oftentimes. In fact, in our culture, we've equated repentance with weakness or possibly being too vulnerable, somewhat of a negative connotation. But the scriptures, in the scriptures, to repent is the doorway to transformation. First John chapter 1, verse 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. There's a command there, right? To repent and confess, to recognize that there's some area in our life 
that isn't in line with God and that needs to be transformed. In the New Living Translation, John says, show by the way you live that you've turned from your sin and you've turned to God. I love this particular passage in the book of Acts chapter 2 after Peter was um, empowered by the Holy Spirit and in his first message he shares with the group there he would preach repent therefore and turn back that your sins might be blotted out and times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send the Christ appointed for you Jesus Paul would say to the church of Corinth that godly repentance produces and leads to salvation. So although it's difficult and not in our nature, repentance, I would suggest, is a gift. It's a gift, and it's also a spiritual discipline. We were on a trip recently, and we are talking about how in our culture, there's a, a movement away from repentance, because we're afraid of self-examination. We're afraid what we might see. We're afraid that if we put our lives in front of God and we ask him to, like David said, search me and know me, that he may show us something that we don't like. I know I don't like that, but self-examination allows God to realign and transform us. And it's not a one-time effort, but an ongoing relationship and a discipline that we have with God. Willingly coming in dependence and need for grace and mercy. As I read earlier, that our high priest, Jesus, might minister to us. Then he would talk about the kingdom that's at hand. It says to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's interesting this idea of the kingdom of heaven is used around 32 times in Matthew alone. And in the Gospels, it take, it's uh, actually in the entire New Testament is uh, about 120 times and three-fourths of those times are in the Gospels. But Jesus would be building a different kingdom. It would be a kingdom that's at hand, that's come near and... Um, just to consider this idea, it wasn't um, the political kingdom like the Jews were looking for. It's not even a, uh, the same kingdom that the disciples misinterpreted. As we know from Acts chapter 1, they asked Jesus, what is it or when is the time that you would establish your kingdom? Is it now? We know that through the Gospels, the, there was a couple of those guys asking for the right hand and the left hand of the throne. They were looking for a different type of kingdom, but Jesus was after a kingdom that would be different. It wouldn't be brought through polit policy or party, as Lynch mentioned on Sunday. Jesus would be building a kingdom, but it would be a different kind of kingdom. It would be a spiritual and upside-down kingdom. Where things like service, sacrifice, grace, and mercy would be seen, where the first would be last and the last would be first, where we were to forgive and love our enemies, where personal transformation and salvation would be the focus. One author, author puts it this way, because I think we misinterpret the kingdom that it's just something in the future, 
But Jesus said it's here and it's now. It's drawn near. That we're in the balance between the already but not yet. It's here, but the culmination is not yet fulfilled completely. There's evidences as we see in one another's lives, as we examine fruit, as we see people change, as we people see people get saved, as we see people get baptized or being discipled or going out on mission. But it's interesting also that Jesus calls us to be participants and proclaimers of this kingdom. Now, I was just thinking about this, and I was wondering to myself, why sometimes over the last few years we've gotten, not, not our church, not for sure not our church, um, hopefully not our church, um, but churches have become very political, right? And pushing agendas and pushing different things, and Lance just told us consistently, don't make this political. And it's easy because I think when we, when we look at the kingdom as political, it's something for someone else to do. You know what? We need those Republicans to get in line and do it for us. Or this particular person or this particular president. And I'm all for Christians in the government and sorts and so on. And this is just my personal opinion. I'm not speaking for the church. Um, but when we talk about the spiritual kingdom, it requires that we get involved with one another's lives. And that's messy, right? Because when we really get to know each other or when we really sit down and, and mentor or disciple or get involved to minister to one another, it takes time, it takes effort, and it's difficult. I think it's very important that we realize that this kingdom that Jesus was talking about it's not rooted in a people or a nation, but centered and surrounding one person, and that's Jesus. So if we look ahead at the future chapters, Matthew chapter 16 said Jesus would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so we see that it's about building through God's people. It would be the commissioning of us in chapter 28 of teaching and making disciples and preaching. It'd be a message of love and grace. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. And that's how the kingdom is established. So let's get back to our passage here in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... I think it's interesting as well, just as we look at this one phrase, is that most of Jesus' ministry was just when he was living life, right? It wasn't a lot of fanfare. It wasn't a lot of, like, getting ready and, like, a lot of, like, sitting up in sorts. He responded to that which was right in front of him. I find it interesting that it was, wasn't long that the ministry of Jesus started that he began to call men and women to follow him. And the unique thing about this call is that it was never about fanfare. We see that throughout the scriptures, God called people right where they were at and with the life of Jesus. It was just a ministry of simply living alongside of others. 
It says that he saw Simon called Peter and Andrew, bro- Andrew his brother, casting the net into the sea. Um, there in verse um, 19. As they were fishermen. And this is the way of God, just calling ordinary people in mundane moments. We see Moses was called in Exodus chapter 3. He was called in the desert. David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 was called when he was shepherding sheep. Men like Gideon were called in the wine press. Often doing daily life, God calls gifts and empowers. And he would call James and John were mending nets. And the same message to both of these groups was follow me. It's interesting, we were, um, I love how when we look at this, Jesus saw something in these men that they didn't see in themselves. Now, for Peter, he was called when casting. We know as Peter's life would develop and he would be gifted by the Holy Spirit, God would use him and anoint him and he would be called to preach. Andrew also would be called to evangelize. They were casting. We see in the life of James and John that these were people that were menders. There were those that would call to care and shepherd people to pastor people. God would call and empower these ordinary men in ordinary lives to do extraordinary things to build his kingdom. But they would have to leave a few things, identity, role, familiarity, occupation, to follow. In Luke chapter 24, following the resurrection of Jesus, they would be again reminded of the message and then the promise of power. It says here that in Luke chapter 24, verse 42, that it's written that the Christ would suffer and on the third day arise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. But they, they would need to wait for these things and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them with power. It says in Matthew chapter 28 that he would take, or he would call them to go and make disciples, disciples and that he would give them authority. In Acts chapter 1, we know that he would again give them the promise of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, the empowering of the Spirit to, the work, to do the work of the ministry fell upon them. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 46, the church is birthed. Now, I personally, and I know we've got to wrap this up, I can remember moments in my own life where God spoke to me and called me. I can remember three in particular, one when I was 16. I wasn't really serious about my walk with God, but I remember standing in a youth room with youth leaders, and God spoke to me that he was going to call me to the ministry. I remember on the hill in a, uh, in a small town of like 32 people in Montana that he would affirm my call and surround me with men to encourage that calling and that gift. And I remember this might have happened to you in the past. One specific Sunday morning on the left side of the sanctuary I was sitting, we were going through the book of Acts chapter 13 and God would speak to me very specifically and set me and my family aside for the work that we did in Africa. All quiet, all simple, 
Just moments where God affirmed his love, word, and mission. And we see that in these guys' lives. They had no idea what God was going to do with them. They were just fishing. This guy comes up and says, follow me. And something about him, the authority in his words, it caused them to want to follow. And they left everything behind. I love the word that it says there. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. That's a powerful word. Now to wrap this up, I think that each of us has been gifted and empowered and called to serve and to build and to minister from our relationship with Christ. Um, and I just want to, again, point out that that was an immediate deciding that these men made. They didn't think if they had better options, it was immediate obedience. I'm just going to read this last portion and make just a couple thoughts. And he went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, par paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of teaching, proclaiming, and healing. As one um, pastor put it, it was a ministry of words and works. There were two hands. One spoke and one healed. One shared and one fed. There was this ministry of words and works in the life of Jesus. I just want to point out one thing in Mark chapter 5 very quickly. In Mark chapter 5, because it talks about this healing ministry of Jesus. I think that we sometimes, in our materialistic Western culture, we may not quite believe that God can still heal. And at the end, I just want to pray for a gal that we got an email on this morning. But um, in Mark chapter 5, it says... Um, that Jesus had completed these miracles, that Jesus had called the disciples to follow him. He was in the, the boat, and he took them to, they, they took him to the other side. And it says in Mark chapter 5 that he would head to the area of the Gadarenes. It seemed that he intentionally went there. And he would step out of this boat, and you know the story. He meets this man out of the tombs. I can imagine that this man was quite uh, scary. Um, maybe he looked like a homeless person. Maybe he looked deranged or demonic. Jesus went to this area to specifically engage him with grace and compassion. And Jesus, with all authority, heals this man. And it says, I love these phrases, the man comes to his right mind he was clothed and made new, made whole. And I want to remind you and myself that we're all called to the same mission and message, and we're given that same power. Jesus told his disciples, this, these things that I do, you're going to do greater works. I'm, 
I'm investing all my authority and, I'm and I will anoint you with my spirit to do those same works. That God's gifted all of us, that he's anointed all of us, and that he wants us, as he shows us here, to be participants in the kingdom. As I think back on last week, um, it was so amazing just to see evidence of the king, evidence of the kingdom. And it caused me to want to press in deeper into the life of Jesus, into the mission of Jesus, into the drawing others in this dark world, into the life and grace and love of Jesus that their sin would be burned away by love. It's a beautiful thing to be invited in to the establishing of Jesus' kingdom. We've got some exciting passages up ahead with the Sermon on the Mount. And like, I hope that um, through these passages, I'm just, I'm just asking that myself, as I, as I read through these, as I listen to the studies, that somehow... God would do a new work in my life and in my relationship with Jesus. That we've been through these passages, that we've heard these stories, and it's like, Jesus, I want to see you afresh. I want a new vision of Jesus. Amen? So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in your word here, you've given us uh, an example, that you've given us a model that you didn't leave us without a witness, that you came personally to, to live amongst us and to, to bring grace and love and to establish a kingdom. We're grateful, Lord, that you allow us to participate in that kingdom. And we ask, God, that our eyes and our hearts would be open to all that you have for us. Lord, we believe that, um, we believe that you're here even now. And maybe over the course of weeks and months as we've been listening to the work, Lord, you've been ministering to us. Um, we're hearing of new ministries and new opportunities coming up to serve in your name, to, to lift you up, to um, proclaim your excellencies, to share the, the message of grace and goodness, of life and of love. And I pray, Lord, that if that's us, that you would bring us out from fear and into faith, that we would step into all that you have for us. Lord, we also believe and we see here in the word that you were a, a minister of healing, that you're the great physician. Lord, I know there's a gal in our church right now, her name's Lisa, going through a tremendous amount of pain, um, this incurable pain that there's no um, drugs or, or anything to stop it, I pray for your healing touch over Lisa right now. Lord, we believe that by the power of your spirit that you're able to comfort, that you're able to wash away, that you're able to do the miraculous. And we just speak healing over her life, Lord. We believe that by your stripes we're healed and we're made whole. I pray out of your grace and mercy you touch her even now and her family. And so we just thank you for tonight. Be amongst us as we uh, chat afterwards and May we just fellowship with one another. Uh, may you be the center of that time. And we pray this in Jesus' name.